I'm sorry, but I find a huge disconnect between the ramping up of alarmist rhetoric and the facts on the ground, and I see no justification for it except to get attention. Welcome to the Case for Conservation podcast. This is your host, Andre Mardo. This month's episode is about environmental alarmism. Alarmism means exaggerating danger and thereby causing needless worry or panic. These days, the media is flooded with proclamations and predictions of ecological catastrophe, and there's no doubt that our environmental challenges are many and huge, and they certainly do present dangers. But are they being seen in the context of broader developmental challenges and associated trade-offs, or in the context of humankind's past achievements and our ability to adapt? And is alarmist rhetoric the best way to motivate action to deal with them? Among the people offering answers to questions like these is this month's guest on the Case for Conservation podcast, Matt Ridley. Matt was, until he retired last year, an elected member of the UK Parliament's House of Lords. He's been a writer and or editor for The Economist and The Wall Street Journal, among other publications, and his non-fiction books have sold more than a million copies. They include The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything, How Innovation Works, and most recently, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. His 2010 TED Talk, When Ideas Have Sex, has been viewed more than two and a half million times, and he's spoken on various other popular forums, including, quite recently, the Jordan Peterson podcast. There are a few things that we touch on in this conversation, like ecological footprint and species extinctions, that really need some more in-depth discussion, and I'll try to address them with other guests in future episodes. But I hope it's clear that Matt is not suggesting that we sit back and relax because the world is okay. Rather, I hope our discussion serves to motivate listeners to strategically aim their efforts to make the world an even better place, inspired by the progress that we've made so far, and despite the setbacks and the challenges. I started by asking Matt for his thoughts on a recent Guardian article, which explained that the newspaper was officially changing its use of the term global warming to global heating and climate change to climate emergency crisis or breakdown. After he responds to that, we get more into biodiversity conservation. At the end of the discussion, we deviate a bit to talk about the possible origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. I've been writing about climate change, man-made climate change, for very nearly 40 years. I wrote an article in 1987 in The Economist when it was beginning to bubble up as a topic. And I've never really changed my view very much, a little bit. I mean, at the, at the beginning, I was prepared to be alarmed. Mm-hmm. But I've gradually gone in the other direction from the world. The world has gone from saying, oh, well, not very interested, to, my God, it's catastrophe tomorrow. Billions are going to die within 10 years. We've got to change the whole economic system of the world, and we're probably doomed anyway. Mm -hmm. That's roughly what the conventional wisdom says, and it's what the media constantly reinforces to us. And that's not what the science says. I say the science, I hate using the phrase the science. It's not what science says. It's not what the scientific articles claim. It's not what the models predict. Uh, It's not what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports say. Mm -hmm. So there is a very clear bias uh, among the, the, the active scientists in promoting this 
and among the uh, media to greatly exaggerate the immediate alarm of climate change. So if you look into those models of what might happen for, for climate change, and then you compare it with what is happening, you find two rather striking things. One is that the only versions of the models that produce genuine disaster mm-hmm. are ones with highly unrealistic assumptions. So a thing called RCP 8.5 assumes we'll burn 10 times as much coal at the end of the century as we do now, that our population will have doubled again, that we'll have given up innovation, you know, that trade won't be working. You know, it's, it's sort of bonkers assumptions about the world. And even then, it projects that we'll be a lot richer than we are today. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're facing catastrophe, how come we're richer? You know, that makes no sense. And, and the other problem with those projections uh, is that they have consistently overestimated the amount of warming that is likely not underestimated it. Um, so the uh, famous first intergovernmental panel on climate change report in 1990 predicted, and that's the word it used, you know, let's not beat about the bush, mm-hmm. predicted 0.3 degrees of warming per decade. Well, we've seen roughly 0.16 degrees of warming per decade since then, so about half of what they predicted. And they said it would certainly not be less than 0.2 degrees per decade. So they were wrong on that. And that was actually one of the least alarmist uh, reports that's been produced. So there's a huge disconnect between what's actually happening in the world and what's uh, what we're being told is happening. You know, I've lived in the same place for 60 years on and off, I live where I was born, and I am a keen bird watcher, and I keep an eye on nature around here, and I observe the weather and springtime. And, you know, last year, 2021, we had a brutal cold spring with a lot of snow right up to the end of May. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not unusual. It's happened several times in my lifetime. Um, But, I mean, I remember my father in the 1970s moaning about mild winters. You know, why are we not having proper snowy winters? Mm -hmm. You know, this was 60 years ago. (laughs) Um, So the the variability of climate is still far greater than the trend. The trend is not such that any species are going extinct in my country from warming. They're going extinct from other reasons, but not from warming. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's no species anywhere in the world that has gone extinct as a result of climate change, as far as we can tell so far. They used to say the golden toad has. No, it caught the chytrid uh, invasive fungus that wiped out uh, a lot of amphibians Mm -hmm. and so on. So uh, I'm sorry, but I find a huge disconnect between the ramping up of alarmist rhetoric and the facts on the ground And I see no justification for it, except to get attention, to sell newspapers. You know, you you offer an editor on The Guardian an article saying, actually, things aren't as bad as we thought. Climate change is happening slower than we thought. Uh, He's not interested. He's not going to publish it. You offer him an article saying it's worse than we thought. It's a panic. It's a billion deaths in the next 10 years. Of course, that's newsworthy. And if you've got some letters after your name, then he'll print it. So there's an inherent bias towards printing more alarmist stuff. Uh, there's, there's a competitive auction of alarm, actually, at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a pity because I think it gets it wrong. And, you know, why is global heating a more scientific term than global warming? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the next question I had was, 
maybe you've answered it to to some extent already is is how can there be such a disagreement when there is so much good science to to call on and uh, i'm thinking also about the ipcc and because my background is more on the biodiversity side of things and i think a lot of the audience as well uh, i think a lot about ipbes the intergovernmental platform on biodiversity and ecosystem services um i do notice a difference between the summaries for policymakers and the full reports which nobody reads right because they're hundreds and hundreds of pages long but to be honest i don't think anyone really or very few people even read the spm it's the news headlines that reach um you know many orders of magnitude more people than the reports themselves and i guess that that's a part of the answer isn't it where you're choosing to get your your facts from yes and uh, i mean i I, I like you I'm, and, and your audience. I'm in a way more interested in the biodiversity issue. Uh, I'm passionate about it. I've worked in areas connected to it quite often in different periods of my career. I worked on bird conservation projects uh, in India and Pakistan for three years, running in the in the early 1980s. Hmm. Um, and it's quite interesting, actually, just to reflect on what happened to the birds we were trying to preserve. Um, one was called the chia pheasant, one was called the lesser florican, it's a bustard, one was called the western tragopan, it's a beautiful forest-living pheasant in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Um, the western tragopan is doing fine. Um, uh, it's it's thriving, and that's partly because of the work of conservationists protecting things. Um, the lesser florican is not doing well. Uh, it was in trouble when we saw it. It's even, even more trouble now. It may go extinct, uh, but not because of climate change. It's uh, basically agricultural intensification loss of habitat and so on you know so there's a mixed story on biodiversity we're losing species uh, we're saving others mm-hmm. and you know if you read the headlines of those reports that come out for the, from the worldwide fund for nature every few years saying there's been a further decline in the abundance of most species and you drill behind the numbers, which I did once, and I went and, you know, uh, took a handful of species that they mentioned as as being in ever greater trouble, and I looked up the scientific papers they cited, mm-hmm. and they didn't give anything like good enough data to support those conclusions. You know, in some cases, species actually seem to be doing fine, mm-hmm. but they'd clutched at a straw of one person expressing an opinion that in one part of its range, a species might be in trouble, etc. So uh, I think a lot of those reports just have to be taken with an enormous pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. That said, yes, some species are declining. Yes, there are good reasons for those declines. By the way, it's nearly always in my experience, invasive species, Hmm. making it difficult for these creatures. Invasive alien species is the biggest threat to conservation. It's the biggest cause of species extinction. Um, And wherever I go in the world, uh, you know, I was in Hawaii a few years ago, wanted to see the honey eaters. Um, They're retreating. They're on the brink of extinction. Why? Because avian malaria has arrived in Hawaii. It's nothing to do with climate change. Hmm. Um, Here where I live, We've lost the water vole and we're losing the squirrel. Why? Nothing to do with climate change uh, or even habitat change. It's because the water vole has been extinguished by the American mink and the red squirrel is being wiped out by the invasive gray squirrel from America. Mm-hmm. And we've just, I think we've probably lost the, the native crayfish because the signal crayfish from North America is in the, the local river and so on. Um, I was in South Georgia 
looking at an incredibly successful project in the Antarctic to eradicate the rat from the island of South Georgia for the sake of many birds, which were otherwise under a huge threat, etc. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to save species, do something about invasive species. That's the main threat anywhere you go. I mean, I was in Africa recently, and I was amazed to find that the whistling thorn, you know, the one that has uh, tame ants living in sort of bladders on the thorns, mm. is now in trouble because the big-headed ant has driven out the acacia ant. You know, so... Um, so I'm I'm passionate about the fact that we're not paying enough attention to invasive species. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just one thing I wanted to add though. Mm-hmm. Um, the species that are doing well drop out of the news, and you just don't hear about them. So, for example, the latest estimate is that there are about eighty thousand humpback whales in the oceans. In the 1960s, there were five thousand. You know, that's a 16-fold increase in the population of a very large mammal. Mm-hmm. Now, other whales are also doing pretty well. The right whale is bouncing back, the blue whale, the fin whale, etc. Not as fast and not as spectacularly as the humpback whales. But um, the, the cessation of whaling was a great success in terms of those species coming back. And it's actually having knock-on effects. One of the reasons penguins are uh, declining in some parts of Antarctica is probably because the whales are eating more of the krill. Um, So there's less for the penguins and so on. Mm. So um, it's a dynamic picture. And it's not at all clear to me that it's wise of conservationists to only talk about the bad news. Mm. Because... I think that's a council of despair. I think that then tells uh, young people in particular, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. You know, the world's getting worse and worse. Whereas if you tell them that, you know, up the coast from where I live here, a brilliant friend of mine named Paul Morrison, who's the warden in charge of a nature reserve, has um, – taken the roseate tern population, a very rare bird, Mm -hmm. from two pairs to 150 pairs in about 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, he's done that by being a good conservationist. You know, let's talk about the success stories that we have in conservation. We're we're constantly told, oh, it's all going wrong, it's all going wrong, it's all going wrong. Well, well, what's the point of going into conservation? What's the point of being an environmentalist if it all goes wrong all the time? I mean, there's that you know, that cliche: if it uh, bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah. Which I think is, as you've illustrated, a, a big part of it. Um, but but it does still baffle me. I mean, just exactly why conservationists seem so dedicated to that narrative. And and my my only guess is that, or well, my best guess is that, in most cases, I mean, the media is maybe a different story. But my reason for pushing that narrative in the past. Uh, was uh, simply because I, I believed it. And so my assumption is that most conservationists and maybe even a lot of conservation-oriented journalists you know, are operating from, from that assumption. Absolutely. I think people are genuinely convinced of, of this and they don't mm-hmm. have time to look into the data to see whether it's true or not. So right. I'm not here to, to say that people are deliberately being deceptive. Mm-hmm. On the whole, I don't think they are. Yeah, it's uh, and I guess that I mean this is a little bit cynical, but I'm sure that there are cases where uh, funding comes into it. You know, it's, it's easier to, as a conservationist, uh, to get funding for something that's uh, needs to be repaired uh, rather than something that's been repaired and uh, you know <laughs> doesn't require your attention anymore. You know, working yourself out of a job kind of situation. Yes, 
Um, I came across a very clear example of, of this some years ago. It doesn't relate to conservation. It, it relates to maternal mortality, people in Africa dying while giving birth to children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out that this measure of human well-being uh, had been going wrong for, you know, there'd been an increase in child, uh, in, in maternal mortality. But that had ceased, and actually the, the corner had been turned and the numbers were now going in the right direction. This was largely because of the HIV epidemic and getting a grip on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a report came out that was going to be published that said this, and there was intense lobbying to not publish this lest it lead to a reduction in funding for maternal mortality mm-hmm. uh, work. <laughs> uh, and and the, the New York Times, to its credit, this was quite a long time ago, this was about 15 years ago, um, the New York Times, to its credit, dug out this story and covered it. And it was, you know, said, hang on a minute, why are people writing saying don't publish this good news because it might reduce our funding? Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a very clear example. I think there's lots of examples of that. Mm-hmm. Matt, to move a little bit to um, a topic which uh, fascinates me, and it's actually the the way that I uh, met you virtually for the, the first time uh, through your book, uh, How Innovation Works. And in it, uh, you don't talk that much about biodiversity specifically, but can you sort of um, cite any ways in which the role of technological innovation somehow addresses biodiversity loss and also just broader environmental challenges rather than the developmental challenges of society? Yeah, um, well... The general point that innovation and prosperity don't necessarily make environmental problems worse, quite often they make them better, Mm -hmm. um, is one that I think is often forgotten and and missed out. So just, uh, you know, getting uh, fossil fuels out of the ground so that we stop chopping down forests was quite a significant part of human history. When human beings arrived in North and South America, Australia, New Zealand, they caused mass extinctions of large mammals on an enormous scale. These were called the Pleistocene overkills. They were uh, remarkable waves of extinction caused by men with stone tools, you know, not mostly men, probably not so much women. And that reminds us that it isn't all about you know it isn't necessarily technology that's causing the problems you know the whale was pursued relentlessly across the oceans mm. initially because you needed uh, you needed the oil to make lamps to have lighting and then when they found petroleum coming out of the ground in Pennsylvania in 1859 uh, and around the same time, around the Caspian Sea, uh, effectively, it pulled the rug out from under the whaling industry just in time. Mm-hmm. Now, in the 20th century, there was another burst of whaling to provide um, basically margarine for food and so on. But again, uh, making food cheap with technology meant that you, you know, it no longer made economic sense to go and kill whales. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of examples of where developing technology and innovation can help us to reduce the impact on um, biodiversity. Mm -hmm. My favorite example is just the big fact of how much land we need to feed the human population. 
We take about 35% of the planet's land area as farmland, if you include um, grazing land as well as arable land, etc. Um, we're cultivate we're plowing or cowing uh, about a third of the of the of the land planet the rest is deserts mm-hmm. rainforests northern forest tundra and so on um and that's about the same as we were using in 1963 or thereabouts i.e. 60 years 70 60 years ago yeah mm-hmm. um uh, and um yet the population is more than double what it was then. Now, that's because of technological innovation. That's because of fertilizer, pesticide, better genetics, all the innovations that have gone into agriculture. If we hadn't done that, if we were still using the yields of the early 1960s to try to feed north of 7.5 billion people, Mm -hmm. then we'd need to plow or graze 85% of the planet's land area. Well, there isn't enough land. We'd certainly have destroyed all the rainforest. Uh, We wouldn't have been able to graze or plow the the Sahara. But, you know, every mountain, every wild bit of land would be gone. Mm -hmm. As it is, nature reserves have increased in size during my lifetime, even as the population has doubled. So thank goodness for uh, innovation as a means of taking pressure off, off wildlife. My favorite way of making this point that actually innovation and prosperity, far from hurting the planet, are often very helpful to it, um, is to just simply ask, why are lions declining in number at the moment, wolves increasing in number, and tigers roughly holding their own? And the answer is because lions live in poor countries. Wolves live in rich countries, and tigers live in middle-income countries. As countries get richer and they stop, you know, relying on bushmeat and timber from the forest and things like that, and they can buy chicken in the supermarket or they can um, heat their homes with gas rather than timber, the pressure comes off wildlife to a remarkable extent. You know, the, the increase in wild mammal populations in continents like Europe, you know, beavers and wolves and moose and all these creatures coming back from being very rare to being very common is very striking. If we can get Africa as rich as Europe, then I suspect we'd have a lot more lions um, in Africa. Now, that's not the view of most people who've been brought up with this very simple and very wrong equation. It's called IPAT, that the impact of humanity on the planet is equal to the population times its affluence, times its technology. Mm -hmm. The more technology it has, therefore, the more its impact. That just ain't the case. I mean, if anything, it's divided by technology, (laughs) should be the equation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, making more efficient use of of resources through technology enables us to, to stand back from nature, to spare it, to reduce our impact on it. You know, where I live would once have been oak forest, that was all cleared. By the 18th century, there was very little forest left in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and every tree would have been hacked away at every year by people just to get enough firewood to burn and so on. Now we're reforesting Britain pretty rapidly. Uh, and basically, you can't 
you know, you can't, you, you lose money if you try and clear trees to and sell the timber. There's not enough demand for it. That's great. That means there's more lunch for beetles and woodpeckers. What you've described now, how does that square with the idea of ecological footprint? Because as far as I understand it, and I might have my figures slightly wrong, um, they're probably about 20 years old, but as far as I understood, the 80% of the world that's regarded as developing uh, has about 20% of the footprint and the 20% of the world that's regarded as developed has about 80% of the footprint. And so that footprint is, is obviously the developed world's footprint is mostly on the developing world because of resources that are imported from the developing world. I don't quite know how that squares with, uh, mm. with what you've just explained. Yeah, well, I looked into this about 10 years ago when I wrote The Rational Optimist into, into how the uh, ecological footprint was calculated. Mm -hmm. uh, and it seemed to me to be rather misleading because, for example, the vast majority of my footprint, as uh, spelled out in this calculation, was the amount of land that would be needed to fix the carbon that I have put into the atmosphere through my, through my lifestyle if we were fixing that carbon with trees. Okay. I mean, that was something like 80% of my footprint. Um, so, well, hang on a minute. A, we might decide we can live with a bit more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's not the world's view at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, B, there are other ways of reducing. You know, suppose I do manage to um, go on to a zero-carbon nuclear power grid. Then suddenly, 80% of my footprint has vanished. Mm-hmm. So the reason a rich person has a bigger footprint than a poor person is largely because of things like that, which are in a sense not imaginary, but but sort of virtual. You know, uh, they're not actual extracting of um, stuff out of poor people's land. Mm -hmm. It's assuming how much land I'd need in a poor person's country or somewhere like that to, to displace my my emissions. So I think in that sense, the ecological footprint is very, very misleading. And, and that those were the, the calculations that led people to say we're using one and a half planets worth of uh, resources and so on. Mm -hmm. But of course, the other point is, in what sense is it a problem if I'm digging up minerals, oil, gas, iron ore, you know, things like that, to make my lifestyle from really quite a small area versus whether I were to be using wood and wool and all these other sort of renewable resources. Mm -hmm. The obsession with renewables being good and non-renewables being bad seems to me very misguided when you think about it because you know, I'm wearing a fleece. It's made from petroleum. Mm -hmm. It's not made from a sheep. If it was made from a sheep, you would call it more virtuous. But why? I mean, that sheep's got to have an acre of land to graze on. That means that there's an acre less land for deer or for mice or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's there's a sort of there's a, there's a there's a rabbit away in in the footprint calculations that we're never allowed to talk about. And by the way it's very noticeable how over human history renewable resources keep running out and non-renewable ones don't 
We're not running out of coal. We're not running out of oil. We're not running out of gas. All my lifetime, I've been told that we're going to run out of these things. Uh, the fracking revolution has led, uh, changed within 10 years, gas from being the first fossil fuel to run out, inevitably going to be gone within a couple of decades, to, okay, we've got probably centuries, if not millennia's worth of gas. Now we know how to get it out of shale rocks as well as other kinds of rocks. Mm -hmm. um, and the same has been true for every non-renewable resource, You know, whether it's iron ore or gold or um, coal or gas or, or whatever. The more ingenuity we bring to finding them, the more abundant they become. Whereas, you know, the white pine forests of North America were decimated, devastated rather. Decimated mm -hmm. means that only a tenth of them were gone um, to create uh, masts for the Royal Navy and things like that. The whales of the Antarctic Ocean were very nearly brought to extinction. Mm -hmm. So renewable resources are a lot easier to wipe out than non-renewable ones, actually. So that, I think, is a big part of the footprint uh, issue. So I guess my, my pushback would be to your last uh, few points there would be that even though we're getting better at using resources, uh, better at extracting them and more efficient at using them, uh, non-renewable resources, I mean, uh, despite the fact that we're getting better at that and more efficient at using them, they're still finite, right? Or at least on this planet. Isn't it dangerous to assume that um, we're never going to get to zero, you know, of, of some really critical uh, resources? Uh, and, and also perhaps thinking about the regulatory function of the climate as, as well, you know, if it is gradually getting worse and keeps on getting gradually worse, uh, even though it's very gradual, eventually it's going to be a problem. Yeah. Of course, uh, I take the view that we do have to keep an eye on the carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. We've taken it up from 0.03% to 0.04%. Um, the higher we go, the less impact each increment has on, on warming, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's a diminishing returns effect. But if it were the case that going from 0.04% to 0.06% uh, would result in climate catastrophe, uh, then, yes, we've got to be make sure we don't do that. You know, we can't use the atmosphere as a um, infinite resource in that sense, to, to use your terminology. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason I say, I mean, you often hear David Attenborough and other people say, you can't have infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone usually both laughs and applauds when you say that. But I just don't think that's true, because what does economic growth consist of? It consists of doing more with less uh, on most occasions. Mm -hmm. That is to say, you know, um, making more money with less energy or uh, raising people's living standards with less oil, gas, coal, whatever it is, you know. Um, you invent a telephone, then 100 years later, you invent a much smaller telephone mm -hmm. with less metal in it, less plastic in it, and so on. So we know we're constantly miniaturizing our devices. So imagine we'd reached the point where we've literally run out of all resources and we're using every conceivable resource we can find on the planet to make someone. And an inventor comes along and says, look, I've found a way of making cars with half as much steel in them. That is economic growth. 
that would be an increase in people's living standards. That would be a way of making more money for somebody uh, and sharing it with, with everybody in the economy. And it would not result in an increase in the need for resources. It would re- reduce the need for resources. Mm-hmm. So there is, uh, in that sense, always, uh, in theory, an infinite possibility of continuing to innovate uh, in a world, however you know, uh, however much resources you need. So again, back to this land point that I that I made earlier, we use 68% less land to produce a given amount of food than we did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. In Japan, they are now growing 30,000 lettuce heads a day in old semiconductor factories that were damaged in the Fukushima earthquake. That's 300 times the density of an outdoor lettuce farm i.e. one three hundredth of the space needed to produce lettuces as you would outdoors. And you don't need as much water because you recycle it, and you don't need pesticides because it's a, a clean environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all you need is electricity to shine the LED lights on, and the only reason we can do this, tech, this, uh, this kind of indoor farming is because LED electricity is so much more efficient. Mm. produces so much more light, 10 times as much light for a given input of electricity as incandescent bulbs used to. So there's an increase in efficiency that has um, resulted in a further increase in efficiency in terms of use of land, which is a form of innovation that is good for the planet in terms of less resources being used and good for human well-being in terms of economic growth. And if you just Take that LED revolution a step further. I'm sitting here on a bright day, and unfortunately, I seem to have left the lights on in my room. I should really get up and walk to the corner of the room and turn them off. But as I say, they're using one-tenth as much electricity to give me light um, at the moment as they were 10 years ago when I was using incandescent bulbs. And... Therefore, I've got to be 10 times as profligate in leaving the lights on in my house in order to um, be actually making things worse than, than they were 10 years ago. And I don't, I mean, yes, I'm probably less good at switching lights off in the daytime, but I doubt I'm 10 times less good. Mm-hmm. So um, there's a thing called the Jevons Paradox. Stanley Jevons was a 19th century economist, and he said the problem with making coal cheaper, uh, sorry, with being more efficient in your use of coal, Mm -hmm. getting more heat out of less coal or more electricity from a turbine or whatever, is that you make the product cheaper, the electricity cheaper, and so you use more of it. You're more wasteful in the use of it. Mm-hmm. So what happens, or you increase the demand for it. Um, so what happens is you don't actually get a saving from these efficiencies. Now, that's clearly true of lots and lots of things. You know, By making mobile phones cheaper, we didn't reduce the amount they were used. We increased the amount they were used. Mm-hmm. But I think, nonetheless, you are seeing an, an interesting reduction in energy use in Western countries these days, genuine reduction, not just per capita reduction. Um, And I suspect we're beginning to get so efficient in the use of some energy, some forms of energy, 
uh, that we can actually have greater prosperity with less energy use, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I've gone off on a slight tangent there, but you get the point. I've actually just recently started reading The, the Rational Optimist. But uh, that light example, you know, you compared LEDs to incandescent bulbs of, of uh, 10 years ago. But then in the book, you also you go a lot further back than that. Uh, and that tenfold improvement is absolutely nothing compared to what uh, uh, advances had been made up until that point. Yeah, I love th- I love that example. Yeah, it's most extraordinary. I mean, basically, the, the ordinary person couldn't afford a candle in the eight- in eighteen hundred. Yeah, and the part where you talk about the length of time for which uh, the uh, you know good old hand axe. Uh, remained unchanged in human history without, and this is kind of a complete aside, so I'm sorry for derailing the discussion a little bit, but I had to mention this. Was it uh, t- uh, 100,000 years? or No, it's, it's a million years. Um, the Ashwalian hand axe was in use about a million and a half years ago um, and up till about um, a few hundred thousand years ago. Uh-huh. There is some uh, sort of change in the design during that period, but not much. And it's all over the world. Weirdly, these teardrop-shaped axes can be found all over the world. And so you could that's technology, but it's technology without innovation. I mean, imagine using the same product for a million years. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we find it hard to imagine using the same product for 10 years these days, <laughs> let alone a million years. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? So the last thing I wanted to ask was, do you think that there are uh, conservation and perhaps broader environmental issues that are suffering as a result of certain issues being overemphasized and you know uh, too much alarm being placed on uh, on certain uh, issues and one that comes to mind um, which I think I've heard you talk about among other people is the the state of the oceans and the and the ocean uh, fisheries uh, I actually recently spoke to a professor on the podcast from Stanford University who did a wonderful review of aquaculture's advances in the year 2000 and uh, 2001 and then she repeated the the study in uh, 2020 or 2021 uh, looking at the advances in aquaculture uh, and how that is um, helping to to address that particular problem feel free to talk a bit about that one as well but also any others which you think are kind of taking a back seat as a result of the focus of attention on certain environmental issues and especially conservation issues Yes, I object to the overemphasis on climate change, not because I think climate change is unimportant, but because I think we've reached the point where we are actually neglecting significant environmental problems. Uh, So my objection is environmental. It's not just economic. I'm passionate about the red squirrel in my part of the world. Um, I, I want it to be saved. But whenever I say to the UK government, please, can we try and do something about the loss of the red squirrel, which is slowly going extinct in our uh, country, Mm -hmm. I'm basically told, no, no, all the money is going to climate change. Mm -hmm. Climate change is more important. Climate change, climate change, climate change. (laughs) And I just sort of say, well, hang on a minute. You know, we've got... As I say, wherever I go in the world, invasive species are the problem. Invasive species are the immediate problem that conservationists on the ground are fighting. But it's something that never gets talked about by governments, never gets talked about by activists, never gets talked about in the media. And, uh, you know, that's what I would be spending more money on, more attention on, to try and stop these accidental releases, sometimes deliberate releases of species Mm -hmm. that interfere with native ecosystems and that lead to the uh, sort of 
bland similarity. You know, wherever you go in the world, you see sparrows and starlings and whatever. Um, and I think that's a pity. So I, I, I'm a, I'm passionate believer that we're underplaying invasive species mm. as an issue. Mm-hmm. Likewise, as you say, I think the overfishing of the oceans is by far the biggest vandalism that we're doing to the environment uh, mm-hmm. these days. And, you know, I'm all for some degree of sustainable use of fisheries. And, you know, fishermen can be the best conservationists if, if the incentives are well aligned. Mm-hmm. Places like Iceland have figured this out. You know, so to give, you give them a sort of transferable quota of the fishery and then they they have an interest in making sure that it's worth something at the end of their life mm-hmm. or at the end of the year or whatever um so there are ways of of getting the fishermen on side but far too often that's not the way fisheries are managed particularly within for example the european fisheries policy in in the european waters mm-hmm. um uh, and you see devastating technologies used you know scallop trawling i love eating scallops but i'm not sure i should be eating scallops because you know the the trawling of them just destroys uh reefs you know made of coral and sponges and things in in cold water admittedly off off of places like scotland mm-hmm. um so uh, and and where marine reserves have been established i think there's a good one in baja california for example What's come back in terms of not just the quantity of fish, but the size of fish, you know, some mm-hmm. of these things growing to far larger sizes than we expected, um, is spectacular. So, uh, and, and I completely agree with you that aquaculture is got to be the solution. So um, I said it's wonderful that whales are coming back, but that's a relatively rare bright spot in the ocean. There's an awful lot Mm -hmm. still going wrong uh, in the ocean. And I think some of the accounts of what, of of the, you know, the enormous shoals of herring, the enormous shoals of of all sorts of other fish that that will have lived in our oceans in the past are... um, something we should aspire to. So those are my two conservation priorities. They're, they're, you know, When I make donations to conservation, which I do from time to time, mm-hmm. they're usually about invasive species or about uh, overfishing. They're not usually about climate change because I think vast quantities of money are going into combating climate change, but I don't think it deserves to be 10 times as important as these two other causes. Mm-hmm. Just a quick note on invasive alien species. The, the institute where I'm based, I'm actually sitting there now. I'm sort of using the premises after hours to make sure that my two-year-old doesn't interrupt the, the conversation. <laughs> we are hosting the technical support unit for IPBES's uh, assessment on invasive alien species. Um, and that will be uh, coming out in about a year's time. Fabulous. So that'll be the first kind of global assessment on the state of invasive alien species, including you know, establishment, introduction, establishment, pathways, uh, spread, all the rest of it. Biological control, yeah. All those things, yeah, there's a, a chapter on, on each. Um, but I also, a while ago, one of the earlier episodes, I spoke to a Swiss ecologist who argues for um, for the fact that uh, we should be a little bit more forgiving of uh, alien species, not invasive species, but alien species, which are usually the invasive ones, right? Um, and I won't go into the details of that that conversation, but from my understanding, uh, invasive alien species is is one of five main drivers of biodiversity loss. One of them, but not the top one. And usually, habitat destruction or habit or land change is 
usually at the top, and then climate change is usually number two. And then the other three are invasive alien species and overuse or overharvesting and pollution. But it sounds like you, um, I didn't want to sort of push you on this topic too much. But I mean, I, I know of some very good scientific papers produced in the last 10 years that that mm-hmm. uh, that put invasive alien species as uh, a cause of more extinctions, more global extinctions uh, than any other cause. Mm-hmm. Um but your friend is right that they don't damage ecosystem services on the whole, with some exceptions. You know, that, that an English forest with grey squirrels in it is no less productive than an English forest with red squirrels in it. It's just, you know, for me as a, a bird watcher, when I, want, when I go to an exotic country, I don't want to see the same birds as I see at home. Mm. I just love the 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 geographical diversity of this world. And by the way, they are a huge problem on islands. I mean, the the reason they are the cause of most most species extinctions Mm -hmm. is because most species extinctions happen on islands. I mean, of the 170 bird and mammal species that have gone extinct uh, globally uh, in the last several hundred years, only nine were not island species, interestingly. Six birds and three mammals. Mm and you know, so the extinction at the moment is still largely an island phenomenon. You know, Galapagos, South Georgia, you know, Hawaii, whatever. Hawaii lost some enormous number of bird species, mm-hmm. um, and so the the threat to continental species is less from invasive species, but then the threat to the continental species is less anyway. Islands is where we're losing species. Right. Yeah. Um. Matt, we've got five minutes left. Shall we see if we can fit in a little dis- sort of side discussion on zoonotic risk? Yes. Well, it's a it's a quick point, and I can deal with it fairly quickly, I think, mm-hmm. which is that we don't know how this pandemic started, mm-hmm. um, but uh, there is very strong circumstantial evidence pointing to the possibility that it might have leaked from a laboratory. Uh, there's also the possibility that it came through the wildlife trade, which still exists in China. Those are the two main possibilities. But quite early on, we heard people saying this is a cautionary tale about deforestation, uh, about the damage human beings are doing to habitats, which means that bats are coming into contact with human beings for the first time. uh, And that means that we're more likely to get uh, diseases from wild animals because the bats have got nowhere to go. So they come and live in towns, blah, blah, blah. And this is just such nonsense on stilts that I had to say so. Because first point, Southern China is not deforesting, it's reforesting at a rapid rate, one of the most reforesting parts of the planet. There's more forest every year. There's more habitat for bats, not less, every year. Mm -hmm. Um, This is partly because people are moving out of the countryside and moving into towns. And the second point is, it's ancient human beings in the old days and poor people today who come into contact with wildlife, not modern Western people living in towns. You know, bats don't move into towns because they've got nowhere to live in the countryside. They move into towns because we provide them with lovely roofs to to roost under. Mm. Uh, There's a reason we called our ancestors cavemen. They went into caves a lot. Um, You know, people went way deep underground for reasons of ritual, Mm. in search of food and so on. If If all that it took to catch a disease from a bat was to go into a cave then we had a heck of a lot more reasons for going into caves a 1,000 years ago and indeed 200 years ago than we do today. 
So that's not what's causing a series of pandemics or epidemics, some of which might turn into pandemics. Mm -hmm. What's causing that is that we live in huge cities. We travel around the world. So when there is a local outbreak, Mm. it can become a global pandemic. It's not because of anything that, that we're doing to the wildlife or to their habitats. It's because we are a unbelievably dense and large biomass species now. We are a irresistible target for an ambitious virus. <laughs> and uh, so I, I think it's 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 a huge mistake to say there is some kind of ecological moral lesson out of this mm-hmm. about how we shouldn't be coming you know how, how it's it's the destruction of forests that's going to cause these pandemics i just don't think that's the case and do you think that there is sort of a link between that and what we started off discussing this propensity for environmental alarmism do you think it's that or do you think it's a case of maybe or maybe this is the same thing the case of conservationists sort of using that opportunity as a way of of pushing their agenda i think there's there's some pretty obvious opportunism here you know I keep thinking why it is that there's no one who has a professional interest in pursuing the possibility that it came out of a lab. The virologists don't want to talk about it because they don't want the reputation of uh, virology labs to be under the spotlight. The Chinese authorities don't want to talk about it because they don't want uh, a mistake in a lab to be blamed on China. The environmentalists don't want to talk about it because they'd much rather use this as a... um, funding opportunity for uh, um, researching further environmental destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that were said early in the pandemic came perilously close to telling people that bats are a, a huge risk and you should chase them out of your homes and you should freak out if you find bat droppings in your garden or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, uh, it looks to me like... Most bat viruses can't infect human beings unless something's been done to them in a laboratory or in some other conditions like a a wildlife market. So, you know, don't be nasty to the bats. It's not their fault. Okay, I have two guests lined up for the next episode. Um, I'm not yet sure which of those episodes will be posted in July 2022 and which will be in August. But uh, one of the guests is Joseph Opoku, a Ghanaian environmental journalist who I'll be asking about genetic modification and why he supports it. We'll focus there particularly on an article that he wrote about how GMOs help biodiversity. And the other guest uh, is Eric Sanderson, a senior conservation ecologist at the Wildlife Conservation Society in the US and author of Manhattan, A Natural History of New York City. I'll be asking Eric why he thinks that cities are helping to save nature globally.